Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. I grew up loving music. I grew up in a musical household. Nobody uh, really played an instrument. My mother played the piano with no lessons, and she used to play by ear, but we didn't have a piano. Uh, my father, I grew up uh, as a kid in Brooklyn listening to uh, the radio, and uh, this was in the uh, 1940s when I was a little boy, and it was the era of the big band music when good Jazz music was was also the popular music of the country with the Dorsey Brothers and Glenn Miller, etc. Uh, Artie Shaw. And my father really loved music, and he, he used to listen to WNEW, the Make Believe Ballroom, with Martin Block, and then later William B. Williams and Jerry Marshall were the disc jockeys, and they'd have the... My father would be making pancakes on a Saturday morning, and we'd be listening to the Top 40 and... Uh, all these wonderful songs by, uh, by Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, uh, Dean Martin, all sorts of people. And uh, my father uh, had pretty good taste. He, he knew who he liked. His favorite vocalist, and he was an Italian-American guy uh, born here, uh, and it wasn't Frank Sinatra. He liked Frank Sinatra, but he really liked better Nat King Cole. And he also liked on the female side, Sarah Vaughan, and then Ella Fitzgerald, which he had pretty good taste. Uh, and my mom, her taste ran to uh, all the big band music she liked very, very much. And she liked uh, uh, Frank Sinatra as well, Mario Lanza, Perry Como. And uh, she also liked Liberace because he was a showy piano player. And I guess she wanted to be a piano player. In any event, I never realized where my love of music would lead me. I later on became a, a manager of uh, two rock bands, one in college and one an Irish rock band later on as a lawyer. But uh, I also, late in life, took up saxophone and started taking lessons. And um, my brother Bobby, I, I, I regretted the fact that I never took musical lessons. I wasn't deprived, but it just never came up. And uh, it never was on the horizon. Uh, that I should take music lessons. I never said anything, and never asked, and it wasn't offered. So it just never came up. But I always kind of um, regretted that fact. And my brother was very kind, and uh, for a birthday present, he bought me a sax. And he bought me a top-of-the-line Yamaha alto sax. Now, I really wanted to play tennis sax, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that I'd rather have a tennis sax, but he bought the alto sax without asking. And it turns out I liked the alto sax anyway because it was actually smaller and probably better suited to a guy with my frame, you know, than, than the bigger tennis sax. And I was looking to take lessons. So I asked my friend Henri in France. Uh, he had a friend who was an American musician, Marcus Fiorillo, who played uh, the guitar for Roy Haynes, famous jazz drummer. And Roy Haynes' uh, quartet or, or, or trio. And uh, he put me in touch with Marcus. And I called Marcus says, I'm a friend of Henri's from Paris. Oh, Henri, Henri, I love him, you know. What can I do for you? I said, Marcus, I said, I'm looking for uh, uh, somebody in New York uh, to teach me uh, alto sax. 
Marcus said, come and see me. I'm going to play a gig uh, downtown. Let me think about it and uh, come and see me. If you want to come and see, I'd, I'd, be, I'd love to meet you anyway. We'll have a drink and I'll, I'll, I'll get a couple of names up for you. So I did. And I went to Soho and I visited Marcus, whom I never met before. I knew he was the guitar player, so it was easy to pick out. And um, we had a nice evening at the little place called uh, Salt Peanuts, a jazz club in, in Soho. And Marcus came up with two names. One of them was very well-known and an older man, Lee Konitz, who had his own nonet or a nine-piece band. And he had, uh, Lee Konitz was, uh, was uh, a very, very well-established and highly regarded uh, alto sax player for his whole career. And he was getting on in years, and he still was uh, at the pinnacle of his career. And the other one was a young man named Roger Rosenberg. And Marcus said, Roger's a friend of mine. We play studio gigs together. He's a phenomenal musician. He's just as good as Lee Cohn. He's not as well known because he's a young man and he's building his career. He said, but I assure you, he can play just as well. And um, he said, either one of those guys would be great. Lee Cohn does give lessons to some people uh, on occasion. And uh, you could talk to him. And he says, and, uh, and of course, you could talk to Roger. I don't know if he gives lessons. Uh, I called Roger on the theory that I wanted to deal with a younger guy, and I figured he would be, you know, more inclined to 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 need the money and give and give the lessons. And Roger said, I, uh, on the recommendation of Marcus, he said, I, I I never had students. I didn't. I don't teach. He said, I don't give lessons, but let's give it a try. So I went to Roger's apartment uh, in Manhattan Towers on West Forty Third Street around 10th Avenue, and Manhattan Towers are two large, two large 30-story apartments filled with performing artists and people in the arts, and they're subsidized by New York City. It's a great idea. All these people are the people who work in any capacity on Broadway or in TV or in movies or uh, uh, anywhere in, in, in creative arts, whether they're musicians, writers, authors, what have you. Uh, and their income... Well, their rent is based on their income because artists have fluctuating incomes from year to year. One year is very great and the other year is dry. And if your income goes up, you pay a higher rent the following year. And if your income is down, you pay a lower rent the following year. It's a very, very intelligent system and it works very, very well. And of course, down in the lobby, there's notices on billboards for auditions for everything. You know, this is coming up, that's coming up, this film, that show, what have you. And it's, it's a really nice atmosphere. And, and I went up to Roger's uh, apartment, a very nice apartment up there on the 10th floor. And he uh, had uh, his wife's piano. His wife was also a, a concert pianist. Her name was Benita Meshalam. And uh, she taught and she also uh, played classical uh, music. And she was on Steinway's list. She would get free piano from Steinway anywhere she played because she was that good. In any event, uh, and by the way, Paquito de Rivera, one of the most famous alto sax players in the world, lived right down the hall. He was a Cuban uh, exile or a Cuban refugee. Anyway, he, he left Cuba. So um, Roger and I were playing, playing, and uh, we got to be good. And we got to be friends. We, we became friendly over, over, over the, the weeks and the months that followed, and he was an excellent teacher, and I was doing pretty well. I enjoyed it, and he was very, very good. I got personal attention from him, and it, it worked out very, very well. And one day uh, after a lesson, uh, Roger uh, said, I, I, I have to leave uh, quickly, Rudy. He said, we're going to wrap up, and I want to get out of here quickly. I have to go for my lesson. I said, Roger, hold on a second. You take lessons? Now, Roger was a studio musician. He was the first call on his 
saxophone uh, to play uh, on any recording dates or any big uh, big musical projects that were around that needed professional musicians. He said, yeah, yeah, no, I take lessons. He said, I, I, uh, I take lessons um, in uh, classical composition. I'm taking a master class with, with one professor who's who's very, very accomplished guy. He says, and I take, I'm, I love classical music. I, I write classical music. He said, and uh, I'm really, you know, I'm really enjoy it. And I've been doing this for like three years. It's a five-year course and I'm in the middle of it. He said, I, I can write music all day long. Now, Roger was a graduate, by the way, of the Berkeley School of Music. And his proudest boast was that from the day he graduated college, he never worked another gig. He never had to do anything but earn money as a musician. That's how good he was and how prominent he was. He said, but um, uh, I'm taking these lessons and, and I enjoy it. He says, I can write music all day long, around the clock. I can't write lyrics. I, there's no way. I have no ability whatsoever to write a lyric. I said, oh, that's really funny. I said, I, because I had asked him, do you also write words? He says, no, 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 I have no ability. And says, I wrote words once. And Roger, who's very mild-mannered, he jumped practically at that. He said, you wrote words? I, I said, yeah, I wrote, I wrote some words once. I said, I put them away. It was about two years ago. I got this crazy thought in my head. Uh, and a rhyme came, came to uh, my mind. And I wrote it down because I thought it was a good rhyme. He said, what's the rhyme? I said, the, the Yanks and the Mets, the Knicks and the Nets, the Giants and the Jets. We root from all, watch them play ball, and look what it gets. And it said the song went on, and the name of the song is, you know, Wait Till Next Year, which is about all sports fans, you know, when they're disappointed, and but hope springs eternal. So he laughed. He said, give me, and he's not a forceful guy. He's a very mild-mannered guy. All of a sudden, he was very forceful. Get me those lyrics. I said, Roger, I can find them. I don't know. You know, they're nothing. No, 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 no. Bring me the lyrics. Bring me the lyrics. Make sure you, next week you find those lyrics and you bring them here. I said, okay, Roger, I'll do that. I took a look. And I did find the lyrics. They were put away underneath my handkerchiefs in, in the drawer in my bedroom. And I took them out. And next week we had the lesson. And Roger said, did you bring those lyrics? I said, yeah, let me see them. And I gave him the two little handwritten note papers that I had. He said, can I, can I hold on? I'll give them to you next week. I said, sure. Well, three nights later, he calls me up on the telephone, and he said, Rudy, listen to this. And he starts playing Benita's piano, and he's singing my words you know, as best he can. And wait, <laughs> the surprise was it sounded great because the music he wrote perfectly complimented the, the words I had given him. It was wonderful. It was really nice. I was totally surprised. Nobody was more surprised than I was. He said, listen to that. What do you think? I said, oh, that's terrific. I, who knew you could make something out of that that was that good? He said, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll see you on Saturday at the lesson. So Saturday morning or Saturday noontime, I go, and we have a lesson. And Roger said, okay, write more lyrics. I said, Roger, I can't write lyrics. I wrote once. I, got, I was visited by the muse, you know. I don't know. <laughs> that's it. The muse <laughs> left. I can't write words. I can't do that stuff. No, 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 you can. If you wrote once, I'm telling you, you could do it again. You do it again. All right, I'll tell you what to do. Here's what you do. Write about something you like. I said, something I like. He said, no, no, uh, look, let me tell you. You're involved in boxing. 
He says, write about boxing. Even bo- I don't care. Just write, a, write something about boxing. Anything at all that comes to your mind about boxing. I said, okay, Raj. I, I was dubious. I didn't think I could write anything. But I had given it some thought about his suggestion. Write it. Write this. Write something about boxing. On my way to work, three weeks later, I'm stuck at a red light. I'm waiting for the light to change. And a line comes into my head. And I was thinking about a fighter that I managed, a professional fighter that I managed, a young young guy. And the words came to mind, he had to be tough from the day he was born to a world filled with nothing but trouble and scorn for a boy with no future, a kid with no name. And it sounded, I said, wait a minute. And I rushed to my office, which was only two minutes away, and I wrote out a song. I gave it to Roger. We had it recorded as a a demonstration cassette with a friend of his who sang jingles and a piano player uh, who who, who was a a studio musician. And the name of the song was Fight Kid Fight. And eventually, we submitted that song to Sylvester Stallone as a proposed theme for Rocky IV. And the musical director of the film was a guy named Robin Garb. And Robin Garb liked the song and recommended it to Stallone as the theme song for Rocky IV. And Stallone says, I don't think so. I'm not, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And Robin Garb insisted and brought it back to the next meeting they had when they were talking about music for the film. And he said, this is the song. You should do this song. Well, Sylvester Stallone turned them down and gave the theme song to his brother, which is understandable, is his film, and he's putting up all the money and got all the money for it and everything else, and Rocky had been a very successful franchise, so this is going to be a commercially viable proposition no matter what, and he gave the job to his brother, and he did a wonderful job, and he had that theme song, and we lost out. Continued to write stuff, and I wrote one lyric, and typically I would write the lyrics, and Roger would then put them to music. And Roger then gave me one, he, one time he had a melody and he said, here, write lyrics to this. And I didn't know what to do. And I was reading, I think it was in a Playboy interview with Billy Joel and in Playboy magazine back then. And Billy Joel said, he said, what, what do you do? You write the words first and then the music? Or he said, well, then, you know, the music and then the words. He said, it doesn't really matter. Sometimes I write the words. If I have some good words, he said, I'll write them down and then I'll write the music. Uh, because the words will suggest it. But other times I have a melody in my head and I write the words. You know, how do you do that? He said, that's easy. I just keep playing the melody over and over until some words suggest themselves, you know, from the melody. So I tried the Billy Joel method. I had never done it before. And sure enough, I carried it off. And I did, I did, I heard some words, you know, come to me that in the rhythm of the, of the, the melody that I was listening to. And I gave that to Roger as well. And, um, we were going along, and we ended up writing one song. I wrote a lyric called New York City Skyline, and Roger really liked it, and I really liked it. I knew this was the cut above the stuff I had been writing. It was, it was pretty good stuff. I, I recognized that it had some quality. I, I just knew innately that this thing had some quality to it. And Roger, he loved it, and he wrote a melody, and the melody was terrific. And the song was terrific. The problem was 
it was a standard kind of a song. And now at this point in time, we're not talking, we're talking rock and folk rock and uh, maybe, you know, uh, hard rock, et cetera, et cetera. And where was the market for this kind of thing? You had to get to somebody, uh, this is a standard kind of song, like I Left My Heart in San Francisco, New York City skyline, you know, that kind of thing. So we want to go to like Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra or anything else. And I said, Roger, you know, I know because you've always mentioned Alan Kahn is a friend of yours. And, and Roger had mentioned, oh, I work with Alan, I work with Alan, Alan's a friend. Alan was a guitarist, I believe. May have been a drummer, but I think he was a guitarist. And he was a studio musician that worked on many, many gigs with Roger, and they became friends. They just hit it off and became friends. It's a close circle. All of those guys know one another, and, and you know, some of them grow fond and grow closer uh, than others because they're friends. And Alan Kahn's father is the famous songwriter, Sammy Kahn, who wrote any number of standards, like Three Coins in the Fountain, Second Time Around, uh, Teach Me Tonight. He wrote a catalog of American standards and was became very, very wealthy. I said, if you give this demo, because we had recorded again a demo of, of New York City Skyline and just a piano and voice, I said, get this to Alan to give to his father and, and see if he can help us to get this song maybe to Frank Sinatra. Because you need help getting to somebody like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or any famous Lena Horn or any famous artist. Uh, singer, they won't take songs from the public or anything that comes in the mail or anything that comes at random. It has to come through channels that they know, their agents or somebody else. And there's a good reason for that, and that's because there are scam artists out there that send their music to known artists, and then later on when they record something that's similar, they sue the artist and say, you copied my song. So artists are very, uh, are very, very tentative about accepting music from from just anybody. They won't do it. You need a connection. So Roger, he's a shy guy. He said, all right, I'll give it to Alan and, and see what he thinks. You know, I don't think anything will come of it. So he did. And Alan said to Roger a couple of days later, my father would like to see you and Rudy about this song. Father likes the song and he wants to see you guys. He wants to talk to you about that song. I was shocked. If Sammy Khan recognized the quality of the song enough to talk, maybe he was just being polite because of his son. We'll find out. So Roger and I get invited to meet Sammy Khan at his offices on Fifth Avenue, 666 Fifth Avenue, and where he shares, uh, he has an office in the big floor that's rented by the famous arbitrageur, the stock arbitrageur, Ivan Boski. It turns out that Sammy Khan is very well, very well off, and he's got a lot of money in the stock market. He's also, I think, part owner or owner of Fabergé Cosmetics, the perfume company. And uh, we're up at his office in the suite or the floor that's that's rented by uh, Ivan Boski, and it's very fancy and very nice place. And Sammy sat us down. He said, "Listen, guys, you know we got over the." introductory formalities and everything else. And I was kind of in awe to be in the presence of a, of a songwriter, the statue of Sammy Kahn. This guy wrote a good hunk of the American songbook. And Sammy said, listen, I wanted to talk to you because the song is excellent. It's very, very, very good. He says, and if you're writing this kind of a song, I want to, I want to give you the proper perspective and, and give you some guidance as to what you should do. So, of course, we're all ears. He said, first of all, years ago, 
they used to be songwriters and they used to be singers. Let's say I'm a songwriter and Frank Sinatra is a singer. Well, Frank Sinatra ain't writing any songs. I'm writing the songs. Frank Sinatra's singing the songs. But Sammy Gahn ain't singing any songs, you know? We were dependent on one another. People, they, they was compartmentalized, you know, and people did what they did and, and other people did. Today, he says it's all a mixture. It's a big jumble. And you don't need a good voice to make a song anymore. You, years ago, you don't have to be Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby or Perry Como or anybody else to have a good voice. Anybody could sing, and he, he rattled off a few examples of people who didn't have very good voices and who were at the top of the pop charts. They were doing very well. He says, now, if you go to these people, they're not going to use this kind of material you have. The Frank Sinatras of the world are getting old. Frank is not, for the most part, he's not recording anymore. And if he did, he's not selling very many records anyway. He says it's a very, he's, he's you know, well past it. He's not really interested in doing that kind of thing. And if you want to do this kind of music and you're capable of writing this quality of a song, I have another suggestion. I think you should do what I'm doing. So, well, what's that? He says, I think you should write a Broadway show. You should write show music. I said, how are we going to write show music? He says, well, that's a good question. He said, I, I, he said, there's a lot of money in it. He says, songs like this are conducive to Broadway shows. And he said, a Broadway show and this was back in the 80s, he says the lyricist, the composer, and the librettist who wrote the, who wrote the, uh, the play each get about 2% per week, which means, of the gross, which means about $10,000 a week. Plus there's royalties for cast albums, and if there's another show, like a big show like Les Mis that has 10 different productions around the world, you can multiply that by 10. There are 10 different companies out there, you'll get $2,000 a week times 10 every week. Uh, as long as these shows run. He says, that's what you do. We've been, he says, I've been writing with Charles Strauss. Charles Strauss wrote Annie. And I think he wrote Mayer or Fiorello. I'm not sure. And Charles Strauss was on Broadway, what Sammy Kahn was in popular music. He was a well-established, big-time writer. He says, we bought the rights to the life of Bill Bojangles Robinson, the dancer from Harlem, Mr. Bojangles. And we've been working on that six years. He says, now the odds are very, very long, but if you click, he said, you can just go under a palm tree and clip coupons for the rest of your life. You'll have no problem. He says, and that's what I suggested you do with this kind of a song and this kind of material and, and your ability uh, writing lyrics and Roger's your ability writing these kinds of melodies. I would, that's what I would do. He says, but it's not easy. So well, how do we start? He said, well, BMI with Broadcast Music Incorporated and ASCAP, American Society of Composers, Authors, and, and Publishers, Artists and Publishers. Um, he says, they're the big licensing um, organizations, and both of them have workshops for show music because they both realize that show music is a, a, a cultivated art. You cannot just step into show music and write show music. You have to learn. It's a craft. You have to learn how to do it. And they want to promote that craft because it's a very American and it's a very good source of income for in, in, in the music industry for these licensing people, too. Roger was already a, a member of BMI, and he said they have a, uh, Sammy said, they have the Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop. You can apply to, to, to join that workshop if they'll accept you, and you can learn 
to write show music, which is much different than popular music. Popular music, you write one song like Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. It's a self-contained product. It speaks for itself. That's it. That song is the end-all and be-all of that effort. Show music, on the other hand, is more involved. The songs you write have to propel the story and have to tell the story. They have to be some up-tempo, some melancholy, some slow, some sad, some happy, etc., etc. It's a craft. It takes a long time to learn that, uh, but you, you can learn it, and it takes a few years. He said, but that's what they do. So who are we to say anything to Sammy Khan? He's, he's quite a guy, and he was very, very gracious to give us his time, and he gave us good advice. Roger and I spoke, and we decided, all right, we'll submit the song, and we'll apply to BMI because he's a member. And we did. We applied to BMI as candidates for their musical theater workshop. Roger as a composer and I as a, as a lyricist. And they have also composer lyricist in, in, in one shot. They get, that year anyway, they had 300 applicants from across the country and around the world. And they select 20. And Roger was selected, no surprise, as a composer. He was a monster musician. It was no surprise at all. I made it as a lyricist, which was a total surprise. It could have knocked me over with a feather because I didn't think I had anything, you know, in real... I'm not being falsely modest. I didn't think I had the, the, the chops to, to, to be in that league with anybody. Apparently, they liked the song, and we had to go and perform. I had to perform it separately and had to sing it because the songwriter has to be able to sing his own song to demonstrate it to other people when you want them to sing it. So, they, yes, I even managed enough of a voice to go and sing the song, at least put it over credibly. It didn't have to be good. It just had to be get the idea of the song over. And I was selected, and we spent the next three years there and I was in the company of the most wonderful people at the musical theater workshop, the Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop. And they were fabulous. These people were so talented. And we would have these assignments every week. And Roger and I wouldn't necessarily work together. We would work with other people, and they didn't put us together. And, I mean, there was one gal there who I would just look forward to hearing whatever she came up with that week for the assignment because everything she did, she hit it right out of the park. It was a grand slam home run. She was that gifted. And it turns out her name is Anne Hampton Calloway, and she's one of the top cabaret singers in the country now. She sings at all the very, very best cabarets in the country. And her sister, Liz, is also a Broadway leading lady, Liz Calloway. So they come from a very musical family. And that's the kind of company I was in. Not to mention I was in the company of Roger, who worked with Paul Simon, uh, John Lennon, Tito Puente, Sarah Vaughan, Lena Horne, uh, Natalie Cole, Tony Bennett, you name it, Barbara Streisand. So I was in pretty good company, and I was very, very good. And, and the thing, we kept going, kept going, and then sooner or later, it just died down and, and Roger had to make a living. I had to make a living. My business was getting very busy and and, and uh, it, we we sort of petered out after three years and we haven't done it. I still have these songs and I'd like to go and, 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 and pedal them somewhere after all is said and done. But uh, we even had a song we sold to, we didn't sell it, Donald Trump was starting, a, uh, he had bought the New York, uh, the New Jersey Generals or the New York Generals football team to start a, a rival to the NFL. And he accepted our song and said, all right, we'll come in and, and we'll make a deal and uh, we'll make some arrangements. 
uh, I'll be in touch with you in a couple of weeks. And the next week, the whole league folded. So that never happened. But we came close. Almost sold a song to Donald Trump. And uh, the whole thing has been just been a joy. It's a very nice thing. My wife used to tease me because Roger would call up on the phone. She said, you guys are like Ishtar. You're like uh, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman and, and the other guy from, from Ishtar. And uh, uh, we would listen to melodies and sing songs over the phone. Oh, that's it. That's right. No, change that word. No, okay. Do this, do that. We had nothing uh, but a ball. And um, the... Uh, once, and, and, and I'm just going to close this whole little story on, on one note. It's been nothing but a joy, uh, and I'm still anxious to go out there and push some of the songs that we wrote, because I think we've never properly pushed them. You have to hustle them. And um, the, uh, there was an ad years ago in the newspaper that, uh, involving Sammy Kahn, which was re really very, very cute. They said, oh, the famous songwriter Sammy Kahn, it was for 9X. It was then the, the big telephone company in the country. And 9X had 9X asked Sammy Khan, famous songwriter, Sammy, what comes first, the words or the music? And Sammy said, the phone call. <laughs> you don't get the phone call. You don't write the words and you don't write the music. So I'm still waiting for the phone call. <laughs> and uh, hopefully one day we'll get one. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School. I'm Judge Rudy Greco. Court is adjourned. The Yanks and the Mets, the Giants and the Jets, the Knicks and the Nets. We cheer for them all, watch them play ball, and look what it gets. <laughs>